Please open a Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 20. If you're using our church Bibles, that's found on page 1163. We'll get back to Exodus at the end of the month, uh, but the next text coming up in the book of Exodus was the laws for how to build an altar, and I felt like maybe that wasn't the most fitting text for the beginning of a new year and a Sunday when we install some new elders. So we'll look at that in a couple weeks. Uh, but I wanted to pick a text fitting for the beginning of a new year and for new terms for some elders. So I settled on Ephesians chapter 6 for two reasons. First, it seems to me, and I hope I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that this could end up being a rather combative year as we enter another election cycle and American politics get increasingly polarized and vitriolic. And in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that there is a battle going on, but he helps us to see clearly the nature of the battle that confronts us. And so I want to set us straight at the beginning of the year what the real battle is, where our attention needs to be focused. But second, the rich imagery in this passage is a good reminder to our elders and indeed to all of us of what resources God has given us for doing the work to which he has called us. Hear now the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that word may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Our passage opens in verse 10 with a key command. It's the heading for the whole passage. Finally, Paul says, as I draw this letter to a conclusion, here's my last thought. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, be strong is best read as a passive present verb. That is to say it's passive. It's a command, but it's not something we do ourselves to make ourselves stronger, but it's something done to us. He's saying be made strong, be strengthened. And it's present. It's an ongoing process. It's not something that happens once and you're done, but it's continually being strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? Well, Paul kind of tells us in the rest of this passage. I've tried to distill the passage in three key commands. Three commands. 
stand firm, put on God's armor, and pray. Stand firm, put on God's armor, and pray. In verse 11, God, uh, Paul tells us that we are strengthened by putting on the whole armor of God. But before he says anything else about how to put on the armor or what the armor involves, he tells us why we need the armor from God so that we can stand firm. That's the first key command, stand firm. In fact, Paul repeats this command four times. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on this armor. Uh, in my mind, getting at what it means to stand firm is helped by picturing the contrast between driftwood and pilings. Okay, they're both logs, they're both in the water at the beach, but there's a big difference. Driftwood uh, breaks loose from log rafts or it's knocked into the sea during a storm and the waves toss it to and fro and it washes up on the beach and it's there for a few days and then another high tide takes it out to go somewhere else. But along the beach, there's another type of log, piles that have been driven deep into the sand. Uh, on Whidbey, where I grew up, there's pilings from docks that were long ago removed. 50 years on, they're still standing firm through tide after tide, storm after storm. That contrast, at least in my mind, helps me get at what Paul's saying here. We're not to be like driftwood tossed to and fro, moved here and there, but we're to be like pilings, to stand firm through the storms of life. Uh, if you were to read the larger context of Ephesians, Paul has been instructing the church what it looks like to live a, man, a life worthy of the calling of the gospel as a church, as individuals, in our marriages, in our families, and in our workplace. And when Paul says, you know, do these different things to be loving, it sounds so simple and easy. But as Paul ends his letter, he wants us to have realistic expectations. And so he ends his letter by saying, stand firm because the Christian life involves us in combat. It unavoidably involves us in a spiritual war. And so we must stand firm. In the Art of War, Sun Tzu writes, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. Likewise, Paul wants us to know our enemy. He says there is a war on, there's a battle going on, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Other people are not our true enemy. This is fundamentally important to recognize for two reasons. First, if we think other people, other humans, are the enemy, we'll end up using, uh, 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 or sorry, if we think other humans are our ultimate enemy, we will dehumanize and even demonize them. And second, if we think our enemy is human, we'll use human means to fight against a human enemy. And we end up justifying any means necessary to win for our side. I think you probably see a picture of contemporary politics in that. Elections aren't seen as just decisions about the best plans and policies for our state or our nation, but rather elections are seen as an existential crisis, a battle for the very soul of our nation. And the other side is demonized, and any means necessary to defeat the other side is justified. Now, Paul doesn't say that politics don't matter, but Paul is writing from prison. 
the very end of our passage, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm in prison having been arrested on false charges. He's going to end up being executed by the Roman emperor. It's a far more dire political situation than what we face today. It's far more hostile to the early church. And in that context, Paul says flesh and blood is not our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I could be totally wrong about the coming year, but I suspect Ephesians 6.12 may be a key verse for keeping our heads. A reminder, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, if our battle's not against other mortals, what is our battle against? Who do we wrestle with? Paul says the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. In understanding what he's talking about here, there's two mistakes, two errors that we must avoid. The first error that Christians make is to overly focus on the supernatural, to become obsessed with our spiritual enemy. With almost no biblical basis, uh, Christians talk about demons that allegedly control this or that neighborhood, or are associated with particular sins, or plague particular families. Uh, some of you probably have read a book named from this passage, This Present Darkness. It's a Christian novel where, uh, if I recall, a key point, the pastor's car won't start. And it's because a demon has stopped up the engine, that sort of thing. And that kind of over-spiritualizing of life is really simply unbiblical. Paul doesn't actually tell us much at all about our spiritual enemy. But the other error... Uh, or, or, but, but Paul tells us there is a spiritual enemy. And the other error is to say that this is just a metaphor, to deny that there are really spiritual powers that we are at war with. We should recognize that our own hearts are disordered and sinful. We should recognize that there are systemic societal problems that make it hard to live the way we ought to. Those are both true. But we make a fatal error if we think that's all that's wrong with the world. If we say our problems are only in our hearts and our society, that Paul's talk of cosmic powers and spiritual forces is just a metaphor. Uh, Paul, in a number of his letters, Peter in his letters, James in his letter, and Jesus in the Gospels, all are careful to teach us that we have a real spiritual enemy. And if Paul uh, describes all our life as spiritual warfare, the strategic front the key battle is in our minds. If our whole lives are like the Pacific Theater, our minds are like Guam or Midway, these strategic sites of battle. And so the devil's basic strategy is lying, trying to confuse our minds. The devil has neither the power of creation nor procreation. He can't bring anything into being himself, and so he lies and misleads and twists God's good creation. We must stand firm in the face of diabolical schemes and satanic falsehoods. We must stand firm against lies and half-truths that cloud our minds if we let them. Of course, as we've just sung, left to our own devices, our striving would be losing. But Paul doesn't call us to stand firm in our own strength. Rather, we are to be strengthened in the Lord. We're to put on God's armor. That's the second key command. Put on God's armor. God himself furnishes us with armor, the equipment we need to stand firm. 
Uh, Paul's description here, it's familiar. If you've seen movies or illustrations of Roman soldiers, the, the pieces of equipment are familiar. But Paul is also drawing on Old Testament imagery, some of which we've already read. Remember in Isaiah 59, God sees justice turned back, righteousness stands far away, truth is lacking, there's no justice. And so what does God do? He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and faithfulness, uh, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and a redeemer will come to Zion. And then in Isaiah 11, we read more about that redeemer, God's own Messiah. Says we will wear similar, or he will wear similar armor. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks at our Christmas services, we looked at the fulfillment of these promises, uh, as Luke puts it in his gospel: "For unto you is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." Jesus is the Christ, God's promised Messiah. He is Israel's warrior king come to deliver his people armed with righteousness and faithfulness. And so these last two weeks, we focused on what Jesus Christ came to do, his objective work, what he has done to put the world right. And now Paul here focuses on the individual implications of that, what it looks like in our own lives. How does the good news apply to you and I? That is to say, Paul's description of the armor of God is meant to be a picture of the gospel of living in Christ Jesus, strengthened and equipped by him to stand firm. Paul describes six pieces of equipment. Uh, I'll go through them quickly, but notice each one, how much they have to do with our minds. First, he says, tighten your truth belt. A belt was the first piece of equipment that a Roman soldier put on. It held his tunic in place, so when he went out to battle, he wouldn't be tripped up. And like Roman soldiers, truth is the first thing we must put on. Uh, from the outside, we may look very righteous or like we have great faith and things are all put together. But if it isn't founded on the truth, then it's of no use. If the front line of the battle is in our minds, then the truth is fundamentally important. And so we begin by putting on the truth belt. Second, he says, put on your righteousness breastplate. A Roman soldier's breastplate was a piece of armor that protected his chest and his back against enemies' attacks. And what is the Christian's breastplate? In Isaiah 59, it says, God puts on a breastplate of righteousness. And then here Paul says that same breastplate of righteousness is given to Christians through Jesus. We see this illustrated actually in a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 3. There, Zechariah has this vision of Joshua the high priest who is clothed in filthy garments and he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is accusing him. But the Lord says, remove the filthy garments from Joshua and then says to Joshua, behold, I have taken your sin away from you and I will clothe you with pure robes. That's a picture of what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's what happens to us through Jesus' work. Our filthy garments are removed, our sin is taken away, and Christ's righteousness, a pure robe, is put on us instead. And Paul says that's our defense against the enemy's lies. That when Satan accuses us, we look to Christ's righteousness, which has been placed on the Christian. Third, Paul says, lace up your gospel boots. 
Paul's language, uh, again, it reminds us of the half boots that Romans wore with the straps up the legs, but it also echoes language from Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The good news is the gospel. It's the same word, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Excuse me. In the battle of the mind, we need to be ready with the good news. We need to learn to practice, as Martin Luther put it, preaching the gospel to ourselves, of reminding ourselves of the good news of what Jesus has done when we doubt or despair or face temptation. We need to have this readiness of the gospel. Fourth, he says, take up your faith shield. In Genesis 15, God reassures Abraham, fear not, I am your shield. The psalm we opened with, Psalm 18, says, God, you are my shield. And that's a common refrain in the Old Testament. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So what does the shield of faith mean? Faith is trusting or believing or taking refuge in God through Christ. And when we rest in God, when we, when we lay hold of him by faith, he is our shield, our mighty fortress, our bulwark never failing. Fifth, he says, put on your salvation helmet. Again, it's a piece of God's armor that's put on us. When God puts on his helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59, it's a sign that he is about to do a great work of deliverance, that he's going to war to save his people. And for us, it means God's salvation is placed on us as a protection for our heads, for our minds. It ought to be covered with God's salvation. Sixth, then, Paul says, take up the Spirit's sword. And what is the Spirit's sword? The Word of God. In the battle for our minds, this is the ultimate weapon. So it's where the enemy focuses his attacks. How hard it is to read Scripture regularly, to stay focused. You don't have to show hands, but I suspect some of us are probably already off our Bible reading plan for the year. Uh, it happens. It's, it, it seems so easy to read nonsense, and yet when we're focused on the sword of the Spirit, God's own word, it's hard to focus. It's hard to stay up with it. And the reason why is because it's the front line of the battle. Satan recognizes this is the weapon that can defeat his lies, God's own word, the truth. Uh, William Gurnall, the 17th century Puritan writer, observes in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, that we see the power of God's word in four ways. God's word has the power to compel. It captures our imagination and our desires. God's word has the power to convict. It speaks with moral clarity and authority and convicts us of sin. God's word has the power to comfort. It consoles the distraught and distressed. And finally, God's word has the power to convert. It changes hearts and minds. And so Paul calls us to stand firm. We should neither be self-confident, as if we can stand firm in our own strength, nor afraid. Rather, we stand firm, armed in God's own armor, clothed in union with Christ Jesus himself. Okay, that's how to be kitted out for battle, and Paul says to stand firm. But what's the strategy? Well, Paul's third basic strategy for our spiritual battle is pray. Pray. We don't stand firm in our own strength, but in God's strength. We're totally dependent on him. And therefore, prayer is the appropriate posture for Christian warfare. 
Prayer is our only winning strategy, since in prayer we recognize our total dependence on God, our needfulness of Him. Paul provides here six instructions for prayer, and again, we'll go quickly. First, he says, pray in the Spirit. We don't pray in our own strength or righteousness, but rather through God's Holy Spirit. And by God's Holy Spirit, we have instant communication with the Creator of heaven and earth. The Spirit lifts our hearts to God in prayer and exposes our hearts to God in prayer. And so we pray in the Spirit. Second, Paul says pray at all times. We see this in the Gospels, how often Jesus goes away to pray at various times. Uh, we see this in the Psalms. David talks about, I woke at night and prayed to you. Night and day, we are to pray at all times. Our instinct is to pray in times of need, and that's well and good. Uh, when we face a bad diagnosis from the doctor or have trouble at home or at work, uh, we're dependent on God. We should turn to him in prayer. But we also should pray when things are going well. Like reading scripture, uh, we need to be disciplined in our prayer. We should pray at all times, at home and at work, at, in the hospital, on vacation, when we're alone, when we're with others. Third, Paul says pray all kinds of prayer. He tells us to pray with all prayer and supplication. And elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul offers thanksgiving and intercessory prayer. He's saying don't just pray for your needs, asking with your requests, but pray all kinds of prayers. There's a breadth. Our tendency in prayer is to fall into a rut of prayer, to just say the same thing over and over again, or to come to God with a sort of shopping list of needs. But we need disciplined habits that make, pray, make sure we're praying all kinds of prayers on a regular basis. And so we pray together the Lord's Prayer each week, which gives us a sort of model or framework. It begins by praising God. That's one kind of prayer. And then we ask first for God's kingdom. We focus on the needs of the kingdom and the, and the advance of the kingdom. And then we ask for our own personal needs, for forgiveness, for deliverance. The Lord's Prayer models for us a healthy balance. Fourth, Paul tells us to pray with all perseverance. Uh, you may have resolved to pray more often this year, and that's great. But what really matters is not how you begin the year, what kind of resolutions you have to start with, but how you end the year. We need perseverance. Uh, stick with itness. We need patterns of persistent prayer so that over time prayer becomes natural and consistent. But for prayer to become second nature, we need discipline. We need to train new habits over time. And so we should be committed to continual prayer even when it seems like God isn't answering. Uh, I've used this illustration before and I cut it out, but I guess I'll put it back in just off the cuff. Uh, uh, a lady passed away over Christmas break that was 104 years old at my dad's church, and her funeral was a week ago. And in, in the early 40s, when all the men were away at war, she had graduated from a Bible college uh, and felt called to go plant a church in eastern Washington in a small town. And so she went with another lady, and they met for 40 weeks, just the two of them, to pray every Sunday morning. And on the 41st week, finally a third person came to the church. And their desire wasn't to pastor the church or anything like that. They just felt there needed to be a church in this little town. And so they prayed for 40 weeks. And now there's a church in that little town still today. But that kind of perseverance, I, I know myself, I don't have that kind of discipline. 
If it was just me and Tom uh, for 40 weeks, we probably would join a different church. I don't have that kind of discipline. But that's the kind of perseverance. Not that it's anything about Tom. Sorry. 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 I didn't mean to give that impression. I'm saying I know my own heart that if it's just me and any one of you and just the two of us for 40 weeks, uh, I don't know if I could do that. But that's what Paul calls us to, to pray with all perseverance, to stick with it. Fifth, Paul says, pray for all the saints. And when he says that, he really means it. He opens Ephesians by saying, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's praying for saints in another church when he's absent. But then in Romans 1, it's interesting, he says that he prays for the church in Rome, a congregation he's never met, but he's just heard a good report about. Okay, he's saying, I pray for saints that I know, you know, friends that I know, other churches that I know, but I also pray for churches I've just heard reports about on the other side of the world. And so we too should follow Paul's model and pray for all the saints, for Christians in our own church, in other churches, in other parts of our county and country, and other parts of the world. And good news, we have this week at 1030 on Wednesday a group that can help train you to do this. Uh, we receive reports from work around the world and pray for various missionaries and congregations. And if you haven't been in the missions prayer group, it's really low key, okay? Uh, Chris puts together a great prayer guide for us and you can literally just read it and pray for it. You don't have to be a prayer specialist or anything like that. So uh, there's a plug for the missions prayer group uh, this Wednesday. Sixth, pray for particular people. Paul says, pray for all the saints, but then he also says, and also for me. It's right that we have specific people that we are continually praying for. We should pray for our minister, Lord knows he needs it, and for our elders, that they too might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then uh, if we kept reading a little bit further, in verse 21, Paul says he's going to send his colleagues so that you may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I'm sending you so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Okay, it's important to get to know particular people, to know how they're doing, to know how we can pray for them, to know what their needs are, to encourage one another. I guess I should have summarized those. Pray in the Spirit, pray at all times, pray all kinds of prayers, pray with all perseverance, pray for all the saints, and pray for particular people. It's probably too many points if there's two hands, but that's, <laughs> uh, that's okay. We need to stand firm. We are engaged in a battle. And if we just let things go like driftwood, our minds will be swept to and fro. But our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not against other people, whoever those other people are. Our battle is a spiritual battle. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We cannot stand firm in our own strength. But the right man is on our side. Christ Jesus, it is he. He goes to battle as Israel's warrior king, God's chosen Messiah. He defeats the forces of darkness. Our enemy is actually already crushed. And then he clothes us in his own armor. He puts his righteousness on us so that when Satan reminds you of all the ways that you screwed up this week, Christ's righteousness is there as a breastplate to say, no, this one is already justified through my work. He puts his salvation on us as a helmet. So when we start to despair or we start to think our hope should go somewhere else, salvation helmet reminds us, no, our hope is in Christ alone. He has saved me. Equipped in his, own, in his strength, we stand firm 
And what are we called to do? We don't have to come up with any clever strategies to win the world or anything like that. We are called to pray, to depend on God, to ask him to do the battle. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, who is Christ the Lord, who is the hope of salvation for all mankind. We thank you that this good news was not just in Israel, but the Magi's as the first fruit of the nations came and heard this good news. Lord, we ask that this good news would continue to go out throughout the nations. And as we hear it like the Magi, we would fall at your, to our knees in worship, giving all that we have in service of you. Lord, there are some here who know that they are in a battle and yet are overwhelmed because they have never fully trusted in you. By your Holy Spirit, convict them and draw them. Others of us, Lord, we know we're in a spiritual battle or perhaps we've forgotten that. We're Christians and yet we've forgotten how well you have equipped us. May we be reminded in the coming year of the resources you have given us to stand firm. And Lord, we do ask when our society tells us that we need to take sides on all sorts of issues and tells us that the key battles are with other people, that we would be reminded our battle is not with flesh and blood, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle for the lives of all men and women. May we stand firm, clothed in Christ's righteousness. Amen.